give everybody a moment to jiggle ourselves about because as the, the worship man take their seat in the congregation, it saves them craning their neck all the time. You know, going like that. Either that or else they'll have to watch me on the little screen. And uh, for some reason, it's better this way. But what we see depends on where we are and what about our background might be. You know, and to see things with a funny angle like that, if they were all sat over there, they, they wouldn't get a good view, would they? But it's not just being sat in a church and what we see, you know. It might be that I see a whole load of tractors go along the high street later this morning, but you won't, because you're looking this way, and I'm looking that way. The worship band might see them. I don't know. There's a whole load supposed to go down from Ardingley showground at some point. We'll uh, imagine that when it comes to it. We have two weeks until Christmas. But those of some Orthodox churches that still follow a Julian calendar might have another two weeks beyond that. They see things differently. They time things differently. We, here in Sussex, might find this current cold chap rather chilly. But this is winter. And if we look a little bit further north, this might be normal for this time of year. We see things differently depending on where we are. Last night, English football fans might have been drowning their sorrows. While others on the Champs-Élysées in Paris maybe rejoiced. What we see and how we understand things depends on who we are and what our experience has been, and where we're stood. And that's key in this passage. And it's key as we try to get to grips with Scripture and what is happening in the world. The difference in ministry style between Jesus and the Baptist, who'd prepared the way, it was quite remarkable. John was a Nazarite. He, he, he would not drink alcohol. He preached in the wilderness, an inhospitable place. But Jesus' first miracle is turning water to wine at a wedding at Cana so that the party can continue. In John, there seems an urgency. Repent, the day of judgment is just about upon you. It's near. It's coming. The Christ is the one who will judge. 
But Jesus just seems to be, in John's eyes at least, wandering from village to village, taking his time about it. The way's been prepared. No, yeah, that's good. And when he goes to those villages, he's keeping company with all sorts of people. Tax collectors, prostitutes, all sorts of folk that John would have been shouting at. The subtlety of Jesus' parables that speak of the need for people to realign their lives, to repent, is a far cry from calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of vipers, as we heard last week. These are two different men. But the purpose of both was to bring people back to Heavenly Father, to realign hearts with God. One to prepare the way and one that is the way. So John in prison effectively asks of Jesus, are you really the Messiah? That's the question he's got on his heart. Are you the one that actually prepared the way for, or is there somebody coming after you? Now, the early church struggled considerably with that question because it, it, it suggests a fragility in John. He's maybe not all there together, and we like to think of our Bible characters as, as being fully there, fully on message, carrying it through. But this suggests there's a questioning of his faith, and what he'd said earlier, was that right? John had said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And now he's going, are you? Was I wrong in that? And so as the early church struggled, they, they maybe thought, well, maybe the Baptist confident. And he's using this question to give Jesus an opportunity to witness to those that were close to the prisoner, to John the Baptist's disciples. He's giving Jesus a chance to give a testimony so that should something happen to the Baptist, they would already have an allegiance to Jesus. They would understand what the next step would be on their path. But I, along with most commentators, would probably think that's a blinkered vision. It displays a naivety in itself. Instead, we can look at Jesus' own disciples 
and see how they thought. Because when we see the disciples, the 12 closest to Jesus, they continually misunderstand their teacher. They were up for a fight with the authorities a lot of the time. If these men, until the very end, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, were thinking the Messiah is to be a true Davidic king, leading the people into battle, to slay not just the Goliaths of Roman power, but the thousands of soldiers, then perhaps John thought the same. And as he rots in a prison cell, the sword of the executioner seeming ever nearer, the impatience that must be within him is growing. The impatience of his cries on the Jordan are renewed. If you are the Messiah... How long do I need to wait until you overthrow Herod? Until you set this prisoner free? But we, with the benefit of reading the whole gospel and seeing recorded the whole of Jesus' earthly ministry, know that is not the method of Jesus. Sure, at the cleansing of the temple, he fashions a whip. He drives out the money changers. But that actually seems a little bit distant from his normal character. He wins the victory. Not with him carrying the sword but with his arms outstretched on a cross. There might be times when we are like John. We might get angry with Jesus, with the Heavenly Father, with the Spirit. What are you going to do about my situation, Lord? What are you going to do about the mess of this world? The war in Ukraine. Those who, in bitter wind chill, only have a bus shelter open on three sides. What about my pain, my problems, my job, my relationship? Are you really the one who's coming, or do we need to expect someone else? That wobble that John seems to have can come in our faith too. It can happen to anyone. And it's hard sometimes to hear or see an answer that immediately makes sense when we are the one who's really struggling, when we are the one that's witnessing others struggle too. But Jesus speaks to the disciples. The disciples of John. And he encourages them 
He encourages them to look at things differently. For them and John to take a step back and think. They see John in prison and John has his struggles. But if their eyes are open, what else do they see happening? The blind receive their sight. Throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, many miracles occur. The Red Sea parts. Manna is there in the wilderness. Water flows from a rock. Naaman is healed of a skin disease. And a Zarephath woman who only has a meager food ration who says to the prophet Elijah, I'm just going to bake this cake and then me and my son will die because we have nothing else to eat in a famine that's lasted three years. Is able to keep pouring out the flour, keep pouring out the oil and make food for herself, her son and also the prophet. And then that son dies and he is brought back to life. All sorts of miracles that foreshadow the signs and wonders of Jesus are in the Old Testament. But throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, no one has their eyesight restored. There are promises that it will happen. It's declared to be within the Lord's power. But it's something that is spoken of as coming with the Messiah. Isaiah speaks about it in chapters 29 and 35 in chapter 42 as well of the blind seeing in the day of the Lord's coming. Well, the Lord has come. There have been healings. Healings that included sight to the blind. Blind people that can now see. And so there's that initial first connection. I am the one that was spoken of. Jesus' description of what the people of John are able to find reflects the long-promised kingdom. It speaks of Isaiah. And of course, it's echoed also in the song of Mary that was sung in the presence of of the pregnant Elizabeth. And also in the words read from the scroll in the Nazareth synagogue at the start of Jesus' ministry. Not promises of a Messiah bringing justice with a sword, but of hope and healing 
and reconciliation and restoration. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. And having made John's disciples aware of the truth of the kingdom, Jesus chooses to remind the people, including his own disciples, of the importance of John and why they went to him in the wilderness. His poorly dressed appearance, which suggested he was Elijah. Diet so strange it was worth writing down. Conducting a ritual cleansing that was not previously done for the children of Abraham. But something else that can be said is that John the Baptist was not fickle. John didn't bend to custom and convention in the way that a reed might in the wind. He wasn't going to be blown about. Here he seems to be wavering. But only because he wants to honor God. This was God's prophet preparing the way, calling out the need for repentance. And Jesus says, this is important. The crowd had maybe moved on. They weren't so much followers of John. They were now followers of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't let them forget John. He begins to put into context the Baptist as that long-promised prophet that would be coming again, preparing the way. The choice of the reed speaks not just for that place where John had been preaching out in the wilderness by the river, though. It also speaks of Herod. Of the reed. And he could be swayed, he could move depending on what the culture would put before him. Prone to making the odd rash decision. And that would reflect into the story of the fine clothes too. Fine clothes worn in a king's house. Unlike the camel hair of the prophet as he honestly lived and preached by the Jordan. What makes us pay attention? Are we taken in by slickness? A well-spun story in the press, maybe? A newspaper or a news report on the telly? that gives one side, but maybe not actually an accurate picture? Do we judge books by their cover? Or do we in all things pause 
and step back and examine the reality of the situation that confronts us. When we take that moment to not look at things only in our own frame of reference, but from another angle, looking wider, we can often see a greater sense of what God is doing. We sometimes hang on to what God's not doing at that time. But what is God doing? What is God doing, not in the way that we necessarily expected? For he is growing his kingdom. And he is growing it day by day. Until that day when it will come in all its fullness. And that hope that we all long for of an end of suffering, of an end of war, of an everlasting peace may be seen in all its fullness. Amen.